Alrighty, well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to our a prayer and devotional service here at Lakeview Baptist Church here in Vermilion, Ohio. Uh, if you're not here with us presently, but listening online, we appreciate that, although we do uh, miss you. Uh, you can take your copy of God's Word and, and turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, and the title for tonight's message will be uh, God's Providence in Jericho's Prostitute. Now, the story that we're going to be looking at tonight is not an obscure one. It's not an uncommon one. It's one you all likely know. I, I, I distinctly remember as a child in Sundays, and when I say child, I mean like physically small child, uh, I, I remember being taught this in Sunday school, and I, I think even VeggieTales did a version of it. And, uh, and of course, we're talking about the story of Rahab the prostitute uh, in Joshua chapter 2. Now, my intention as we go through this section of sacred scripture is to do something that I don't think is crazy, I don't think it's outlandish, I think it's perfectly appropriate. However, I do think that sadly it is very uncommon. What I mean is I want to look at this passage of scripture from what I will refer to as the divine perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that as we go through this historical event that is being described here, that we would do so with the recognition and the understanding that there is one who we are supposed to be looking at through these things, that there is one being who is behind this, who is orchestrating these things for his particular purposes. Uh, hopefully you will get the sense by the end of the message that even when we come to a passage of Scripture like this where you know, we're not necessarily reading about a miracle like uh, the healing of King Naaman's leprosy in the Jordan River, it's not you know, something akin to Jesus calling Lazarus' name and Lazarus comes walking out from the tomb. It's not, it's not that kind of miracle However, we should still be on the lookout and asking the question, on these seemingly ordinary events, what is God doing in these things? Just as a very brief reminder, some historical background before we get into this uh, passage, the book of Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, at least in terms of the order, uh, left to right, as you flip through it, and the significance of that is that this is the account of Israel entering into the promised land that was promised to Abraham uh, hundreds of years prior, uh, in which Moses spent most of his life preparing the Israelites on not only entering the land, but how they are to live once they are in that land. That's, that's sort of the purpose of much of the Old Testament law, although Moses himself would not enter that's an important element to what I want to be discussing tonight. We, we need to understand that. That when we are reading about Israel's entering into the promised land and, and, and you know, the conquest and, and the victories of Joshua and these different things, what we are reading about is not just historical events, but what we are reading about is the fulfillment of God's promises 
that he has made prior. Just looking at here in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now there's a peculiar thing right there from the get-go that I think we ought to recognize. Jericho, as you know, was a walled city. Uh, The fact that they had means to construct a wall would tell you that this was relative, according to the time, a large city, meaning there's a lot of structures. A lot of structures, a lot of buildings, a lot of people. Yet, of all those people in the city, it just so happened that it's Rahab's uh, dwelling place that they stumble upon. Now, just thinking pragmatically about it, that's actually a smart move. Remember, these men are spies in the land of Canaan. They don't want to be caught. Well, the house of a prostitute on the outskirts of town might actually be a strategic place to go to if you're looking uh, for secrecy. But still, my, my point being, are we to think that this is mere coincidence? Uh, mere happenstance, just, you know, stroke of luck that they happened upon Rahab's house. I mean, even if we attribute the fact that she was a prostitute to being strategy on the part of the spies, why, why was it not some other prostitute? I mean, this, this was a military city, and it's just the reality that if you have a high concentration of pagan soldiers, it's not surprising that you might have a high concentration of of prostitutes. Yet, of all the potential places they could have gone, just so happens to be this one. And and I think that that is significant. Why? Well, what did I already say? This is not just a historical event, but this is the fulfilling of a promise that God has already made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Rest assured, it was the providence of God that carried these men where they were to go. Well, looking at verse 2, and and just to keep on reading, and it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. It's the end of verse 7. Now, again, I, I have to ask you, what a perplexing thing there. For seemingly no apparent gain, at least that we can see at the moment, uh, that would come her way, Rahab just decides that she is going to protect these men. Now, This could launch us into a lengthy discussion about the ethics here. I mean, the fact that 
what Rahab did was technically she lied, and so is that uh, immoral and this type of thing? Too deep of a conversation for tonight. Uh, I know these two facts. I know that God hates liars. I know he hates lying, that lying is a sin. But I also know that Rahab is commended for her faithfulness and her obedience. Well, you just put those things together and you allow God to work the way he wants to work. I'm a Christian. I wear a cross around my neck, which means I believe that God can take sinful actions of men and use them for good. And I'm quite quite glad about that, actually. And so the point of this is that the very king of Jericho himself senses messengers to Rahab, inquiring about the men who were currently hiding on top of her roof, she protects them. She protects them. Now, think about that. What do we know about this woman Rahab so far? What are the things that we have learned about her just from reading the biblical text up to this point? We know that she is a prostitute, and that's it. That's all we know. You know, we, we don't know much about her other than that she is this immoral woman. She is a woman who literally earns her living by selling her own body to be used sexually. Now, there's all kinds of people who say, oh, she wasn't really a prostitute, she was just an innkeeper, yada, yada, yada. That's it's just absurd. That's not what the text says. The, the Hebrew word used there is quite clear. And that's significant. This is an immoral woman who sells her very own body for money. Now, here is this woman. She's face to face with messengers sent of the very king himself. Now, given her lifestyle, given her character, given what we know about her, one could easily imagine that if she was willing to sell her own body for money, I mean, why not the two men upstairs? Who, who, who are they? What, what apparent and obvious worldly gain does she have by protecting those men? I mean, think about the potential wealth and, and, and all the, the money that she could have made for herself if she played her cards right in her deal with the king's messengers here. Now, again, I ask, is this just, just all by chance? Is this... Are those two Israeli spies hiding under the flax on her roof just, just really, 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 really lucky? I mean, could God's whole purpose of bringing the people into this land that He promised Abraham so long ago have been thwarted just like that? Now, the objection is, well, what about the fact that the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years due to their disobedience? Well, look at that promise that God made to Abraham again. What did he say? He, he prophesied and said that there was going to be a lengthy period of time in which the Israelites would be sojourners in, in a foreign land. And he said, when would these things take place? It was when the iniquity of the Amorites was full. So you have to understand that. It's not just the fact of the Israelites entering the promised land that is promised. It's the timing. It's the when. God has already predetermined himself for his own purposes, when these things would take place. Not just that they would take place. So I ask you, when you look at these events here, who, who is the one behind this? Who's, who's the one working? 
something to think about. Verse 8, before the men lie down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And just to stop right there very briefly, I think it is rather significant. Uh, You may know that in the Old Testament, when we see the word Lord in all caps, that this means what's being used here is the very divine name of God itself. Uh, What is called, to give you a a fun word to say, the Tetragrammaton, uh, Yahweh. This is the personal name of God that he revealed to his covenant people. Now, I don't just say that because it's, it's interesting. I say that because look at what's going on here. You have this immoral, this pagan woman in a foreign land that the Israelites are coming into. And as she addresses the Israelites, she is using God's personal, divinely revealed name. She recognizes not only that, but that he, the one that I'm trying to point us all to, that he has already given the land to the Israelites. It's already theirs. It's already theirs. And if we just keep reading, she says, I know that the the Lord, that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The end of verse 13. Let me just recognize, first of all, what an incredible recognition of who God is. I mean, what an incredible profession of faith. This is not something that we would identify as, as superficial. You know, I, I came to God or, or I came to Jesus for, for hope or for some personal reason. This is not anything like that. This is, no, I recognize that He is God. That, that, that He is God in heavens and on earth Beneath. I mean, I mean, how many of us just would think like that about who God is? Like, just the declarative statement that He is God. Do you, do you not realize what an incredible assertion it is for Genesis chapter 1 to say, in the beginning, God? I mean, what kind of arrogance does it take to say something like that? The Bible doesn't start with a philosophical argument for the existence and attributes of God. It doesn't start with a peer-reviewed study on here's these different evidences that if we put these facts together, it's highly probable. I mean, most of the evidence, when you put it together, suggests the likely conclusion that there is a God. No, it doesn't say that. In the beginning, God. 
And this, this woman here recognizes that. She says, I know that not just any nameless, faceless, impersonal, unloving force. She names the personal name of God, Yahweh, He, and by extension, He alone, is God. And heavens above and on earth beneath. You know, I find it so striking that some of the most powerful statements about who God is that we find in the Old Testament are given by Gentiles, are given by non-Jews. Just, I think it was last month when I was doing the devotion here, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar and this, this, this just statement that he makes after the Lord sort of just has his way with him. He, he recognizes who is God and who isn't God. He's, I'm not. I'm not, but he is. She says, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Do you recognize what's going on there? Do you know what that is? That's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. She acknowledges in verse 11, some of the tremendous things that the Lord has done with the people of Israel. She mentions the parting of the Red Sea. She mentions some of the victories that they experienced in the wilderness. But she likely also knew about, for instance, the plagues that were sent to Egypt. She'd probably heard about the locusts. She'd probably heard about the firstborn child of every Egyptian being taken. She probably knew about these things. And as, as the book of Proverbs says, it is the fear of Yahweh which is the beginning of wisdom. And she is demonstrating that for us here. Her knowledge of who God is, what does she recognize? He is God in heavens above and earth beneath. Her knowledge of the power of the might of God is the very thing that is leading her to act so wisely here. That's what you mentioned. This was not worldly thinking that was fueling her decision. She wasn't motivated by wealth. She wasn't motivated by any of those things. What was she motivated by? A belief that, and here is where most Christians will disagree, a belief that God is to be feared. Is to be feared in a sense. And what do I mean? That he has the power to bring about destruction on you if that's what he chooses. Now he recognizes this is not, as Christians, we have, we have grace, we have a personal relationship with our Creator uh, through Jesus Christ. And in this age, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that we don't need this irrational fear of God. As a matter of fact, God wants you to come to Him for comfort. But we should always recognize that our God, who we cry out, we call Him Father. Okay, Jesus or, tells us to address Him as Father. Uh, the Bible says that we're adopted to Him as children. That's, that's personal language. That's beautiful stuff. That's loving stuff. I love that. That brings so much joy to me. We should always recognize the one that we are calling Father is the very one who gave me the breath 
in my lungs to articulate that prayer. And he has not only the power, but the right to take it away from me whenever he chooses. And he would be completely justified in doing so. Sometimes we ask, well, it's not fair that such and such thing happened. What would be fair is that none of us was ever given life. That would be fair. You say, I don't like that. I, I understand. I understand. To like that comes to you by grace. Does it not? So she has this knowledge of God. She has, she's heard about what he's done with, with the Red Sea. She knows about his power. And this understanding of who he is is what is fueling the wise decisions that she is making here. Just an interesting thought. Um, uh, James Montgomery Boyce uh, kind of muses here that, you know, probably the reason that Rahab knew about these things, you know, think the, the different uh, great works that God had done, the, the reason that she had probably heard of those was because of the fact that she was a prostitute. You know, if, if you think about it, given her occupation, she would, she would have heard all the gossip, she would have heard everything that those men who came into her establishment uh, were talking about. And then that, that is likely how she came to this knowledge. And then Boyce then makes the comment that the wonderful and saving thing is that she heard about God not only with her ears, but with her heart. And you see, that's the important thing. It's the important thing. Look at what she says in verse 11. For Yahweh your God, He is God. In the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, given just some historical background, you, you probably are familiar with the fact that at this period of time, vast majority of, of people are, are polytheists. What's a polytheist? A polytheist is someone who believes in multiple deities, multiple gods. That's just how it is. And then, interestingly enough, in the context of city-states, when you would have a dispute between one city-state and another, whether it was uh, military or war, whatever it was, the common understanding of the people in that day would be if such and such city-state here defeats this other city-state, it's because the God, the, the deity of this nation was more powerful than the God of this nation. But she doesn't just attribute the Lord as being you know, your God is more powerful than our God, that type of thing. No, she didn't say that. She says, your God, the God, the God who parted the Red Seas, the God who, who, who is behind you, who is supporting you, Yahweh, she names the personal name, He is God. He, he, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And... That, that is a really striking thing. That's, that's a wonderful thing. And you ask, well, how can she come to this knowledge? I tell you that it is by grace. It is by divine grace. You know, this is something that I personally never thought of. I'm sure millions of other people have before me. But, you know, usually when I was growing up, Sunday school, that type of thing, when this story is being addressed, you know, we... We think about how blessed and how fortunate the Israelite spies were 
to have stumbled upon Rahab, but what about Rahab herself? I mean, is not she the receiver of grace in this story? You know, I, I, I made the comment earlier, you know, what if the, the spies just went to some other place? And what if the place where she went to, where they went to, she treated them even nicer? I mean, not only did she protect them, but, you know, she cooked a meal for them or something. I, I don't know what, what it would be. But yet, of all the people in the city, God chooses to set His grace upon this random, insignificant, immoral, undeserving woman. Is that not beautiful to you? Is that not exactly what happens in, in the life of every single Christian? You are an undeserving recipient of the wonderful love, mercy, and grace of God. And we see that uh, pictured here for us in Rahab. Well, verse 14, And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Just uh, briefly want to mention, verse 14 could be viewed as a threat, as in, you know, if, if you betray us, we're not going to be so nice to you. But I think, and I'm not the only one who said this, that really what this is is a demonstration of love. It's a demonstration of love because she's been so kind to them, the men genuinely care about her and want to spare her. They want her to be safe. Now, she know, they know that if she were to betray them, they would have no reason to spare her when destruction comes to the city. But because of the fact that they knew the law of Moses, they, they knew the law that God gave to Moses, they learned from that law to love thy neighbor as thyself. And I think that they're demonstrating that uh, here in this place. Well, verse 15, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. She said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you've made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened. They said to Joshua, Truly, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. 
And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. That's the end of chapter 2. Now, just a brief comment. When Normally, when we address a text like this, you know, we, we would spend a lot of our time you know, praising Rahab for her faithfulness and that type of thing, and what a great model she is in, in trusting God as opposed to trusting in man and things like that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's, it's appropriate to do that. There are two separate places in the New Testament where Rahab is praised for her faith. Perfect, perfect thing we should do there. But hopefully you recognize that sort of what my goal was in the brief period of time we have tonight was that when we look at the Bible, our first thought should be, what is God doing in these things? I mean, what, what is He doing? What is He telling me? What's, what's going on with Him? So often, we want to start with ourselves, because that's our nature. But I think if we do that, we're blocking ourselves from some of the true beauty of Scripture. You see, the one to praise ultimately in these things is not the spies, it's not Rahab, it's Yahweh. The the one true God of Israel, the same God who is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, my Savior. And in verse 24, we understand this, saying, Truly Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. We, you and me, as the people of God, ought to read a story like this and have the personal effect being that our love and our trust in God and who He is would be increased. That if God was going to ensure that His promises to Abraham would not fail, why should you think that the promises that He has made to you would fail? Surely not. We can trust that just as the Lord our God providentially sustained the people of Israel through something like this, bringing them to the promised land, that He will providentially sustain us all the days of our lives till we enter that eternal promised land we have secured for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, and Pastor Cliff will come and close us in prayer.